0: The first reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter three, beginning in verse 10. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the second reading... Is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses's parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to to tell about Gideon, Barak, There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles.
1: Thanks, Peter, God. Let's pray. Father, the book of Hebrews is meat, not milk. The book itself says that this is meaty, uh, powerful. And so we pray that you'd feed us and nourish us now and sustain us by your Spirit. For Jesus Christ, our Lord's sake. Amen. So we've been looking at the book of Hebrews for a number of months now, and we're up to chapter 11. As some have noted, it uh, has similar themes. They just keep coming. It turns out that the uh, writer of Hebrews stays on message. He stays on message. Maybe this is what we need. A recap of last week since chapter 11, verse 1 to chapter 12, verse 3 is a unit. We looked at half of it last week, half of it this week. Last week and this week are parts 1 and 2 of a topic that of finishing the race finishing the race, even if they want to kill you. Remember, this is the first century. Last week, I talked about John Akwari from Tanzania. In the 1968 Mexico Olympics, was injured at the 19 kilometre mark. He finished to a near empty stadium and then was asked why he didn't stop halfway. He famously said, my country did not send me to start the race. They sent me to finish the race. So the question is, how did he not grow weary and lose heart? Did you know that only 57 of the 75 runners that day finished that race? Mexico is at a high altitude. Put simply, one of the messages of Hebrews is this, finish the race. Finish the race. Here it is, 12 verse Two, let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. And I see, say that, I love how I got footage of the aquari moment. I love it, I found it. Finish the race, even though the race is long and challenging and hard and tiring and disappointing and not pretty, and sometimes you go wobbly, I urge you to choose an Akwari state of mind, which we find out later is a Jesus state of mind. And last week I noted that in 2023, more people are giving up the faith halfway, more than ever before. Um, That's pretty clear from the census. Last week I introduced you to two words, you'll see blogged everywhere, if you're willing to go into a deep dive. You'll see the words deconstruction and exvangelical. Deconstruction is the practice of re-examining previous beliefs in order to ultimately reject them. I used to be, I believe, A, B and C, learnt that at school, I asked some questions that I thought nobody else had ever asked. And now I believe X, Y and Z. And an exvangelical is the name used by those who have deconstructed from their previous evangelical beliefs. They call themselves exvies. I think there's a hashtag to it. It's a very Western thing, of course, to deconstruct it comes out of the early 20th century philosophy. I think deconstruction is one way that people give up halfway, I believe, trying to improve prove in some way that you're, you're deconstructing intelligently. And then, of course, you can write a book about it afterwards. The recipients of the pastoral message we call Hebrews are in danger of deconstructing their faith, but not for Western reasons. But rather for persecution first century it was written to people who are so beaten down with difficulties and problems that they're ready to give up they're asking the question is it worth it is it really worth it and every single week the writer of hebrews is trying to give the the uh, recipients of the letter what they need to handle the brutal realities of life in this world and we listen in we're eavesdroppers today he gives you something New, something else that if you have it you can handle anything if you have it you can handle anything did you notice that the passage is about deep resilience if you have it you can stay Christian no matter what life throws at you no matter what they think of you no matter what they threaten you with what is it how do you get it And how will it help us to finish the race i'll come back to what it is hebrews 11 as we pointed out last week is a hall of fame by faith this person this person this person these people these people that person now that's not quite true by the way they aren't heroes to admire so much as examples to follow in hebrews 11 it's examples of ordinary folk and for ordinary folk like you and me i look at sam kerr She's a hero in my book, uh, but she's so far ahead of me, so talented, you know, I'm not, I'll never, I'll, I, I could never get there. I'm never going to be a soccer player. Hebrews 11 isn't a list of Sam Kerr's. They're a list of very ordinary people who we're told were weak, like us. They just knew how to finish the race. The writer calls them a great cloud of witnesses, like people in the stands cheering you on. And if we knew this great cloud of witnesses, if we really did, if we understood and drank in their stories of the Old Testament and inter-testimonial period, we'd be able to withstand anything thrown our way, which is why the writer concludes, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, people who have gone before us, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So it behoves us to ask the question, what Is common to each of these characters in the Old Testament and intertestimonial period what's common to the cloud of witnesses because there are differences they all do different things what's common so that I can have what they have and I believe these are the four things they hold in common one faith in God I'll get that from verses 17 to 31 but they have a particular faith it's a faith without a temporal agenda Get that from verses 32 to 39 by which i mean timing not physical i mean timing they weren't governed by the tyranny of now they were prepared to die without receiving what they dreamed about and wanted and that's because they had a faith beyond a temporal agenda we get that from verse 40 and then they had a faith that's focused on one one person so firstly they had a faith in god i said that it was raising something, that if you had it, you could withstand anything. What is it? The thing that while you have it, you'll stay Christian. And the answer is faith in God. Faith in God. The people in this, this chapter, they did lots of things, but each of them did it, did that thing, by turning to God rather than away from God. They did it by faith. That's what's common to all of them. Faith, as we found out last week, is not a thing you do simply to secure justification. I trusted God. He forgave my sins. But rather, faith here is a posture of your life. You trust God. You entrust your living to him. You trust his promises in the morning and in the evening. And as we learned last week, it's not blind faith. I'm now half my way through Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion. I'm getting there. It's not blind faith as though your faith itself is blind that is willing to believe silly things that you know are silly despite the evidence of science and logic rather you trust god even though the circumstances are blind you get the difference you trust god even though the circumstances are blind i encourage a deeper dive into chapter 11 Tom Wright, Bishop Tom Wright, calls chapter 11 a family album, uh, pictures of your, of where you came from. You know, go back to where you came from. That's what we're doing tonight. Bishop Tom Wright also, switching the metaphors, he compares the cloud of witnesses to explorers ahead of you. They're historic because they've already gone ahead of you, but you can see them ahead of you. That's why they're historic. They've already finished and tom wright says it's like you have a pair of binoculars you're living your life you've got a pair of binoculars and you're on top of a hill you don't know what's below you in the valley but you can see the cloud of witnesses ahead of you they've already finished the race and you're looking closely and you can see that every single one of them has an ice pick in their hand and that because you can see they have an ice pick you know what's required in the valley tom wright says the ice pick is faith Verses 17 to 31, the writer only gets to Joshua 6. He doesn't have time to go further. He says that, don't have time to talk to you about, but the point is still made. He mentions in verses 17 to 31, you might like to look at the screen. He mentions five men, a couple, some parents, a nation, and a woman. There are more women mentioned in the next section, but this is whom he mentions up to verse 31. And each of them, their faith is their hope, and their hope is in God. They all lean forward. After all, chapter 11, verse 1, faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we don't yet see, because the circumstances are blind, not the person you trust. And so, do a deeper deeper dive later, Abraham was promised that through his descendant and descendants, the world will be saved. It's the beginning of the Jewish nation. But he had only one child who was born in his old age out of waiting and pain and faith. You know that back from verse 11. But God later tested him, asking him to trust him even with Isaac's life. If you read Genesis 22, when God says to sacrifice Isaac, it's a dark read. It's it's hard to read. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, wrote a book about it called Fear and Trembling. (laughs) But what what we learn in Hebrews, which was not explicit in Genesis 22, the faith was, but what we learn in Hebrews is that Abraham never thought he'd lose his child. He didn't think he'd lose his child because something inside of him faith is it trusted god beyond death he he said i my my god has made a promise about this child about rescuing the world through my descendants he must be able to raise the dead verse 19 abraham reasoned that god could even raise the dead even isaac and so in a manner of speaking he did receive isaac back from the dead of course he, god stills his hand and provides a ram from the thicket something inside of him knew about the resurrection And after giving up Isaac in hope, he got him back again. Now, can I just do an aside? This moment in Genesis 22 is a one-off. It's connected to the foundational promise of the salvation of all humanity, and it leads eventually to the sacrifice of God's son, his only son. On the same mountain that Isaac was uh, uh, asked to sacrifice Abraham was asked to sacrifice Isaac, Mount Moriah. Later, that will be turned into the city of Jebus, which became the city of Jerusalem. I do want to say that if you hear the same test, please seek help. Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, there's so much about their lives that are about trust, so many things that the writer could have chosen, wrestling with God, Joseph Joseph in prison, mistreated, yet still trusting God. Yet the writer places Isaac and Jacob and Joseph at the end of their life leaning on walking sticks, not having received what was promised. None of them did, but somehow they leaned forward to promises that they themselves would not experience, not yet something inside of them knew about the resurrection. Moses gets some extended comments. Moses and his parents are about resisting power and about resisting comfort, about fleeing comfort and having no fear which is the opposite of faith. And so we find out that Moses' parents hid baby Moses against the commands of a despot. Verse 23, they were not afraid of the king's edict. We need more of that. How do you get that? As an adult, Moses rejected fleeting pleasures. For example, life in Pharaoh's palace. How do you do that? Give it up, the confiscation of your property. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, all the comforts of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. (laughs) He saw him who is invisible. Strangely, the writer of Hebrews says that Moses had Christ in mind, despite being born 1,300 years before Christ. Verse 26, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward, ahead, to his own reward. Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. His heart, Moses' heart was leaning forward, leaning into him who is the exact representation of God's being way back in Hebrews 1 verse 3, something in him knew about the resurrection. And the people of Israel too, they trusted God going into the Red Sea. They're afraid of water, but in they go. They trusted God ringing Jericho just seven times with prayer and a bunch of trumpets. Like, it's almost ridiculous to read this story. And lastly, in verse 31, there's a prostitute, and she's named. Her name is Rahab. And we're told, because she welcomed the spies, which she did by faith, she was not killed with those who were disobedient. Just like Corrie Timboom. each of them by faith. But here's the key. It's not just any faith a particular kind of faith it's faith without a temporal agenda he heats up in verse 31 32 he says and what more shall i say i don't have time you might think um that's good (laughs) neither do i i don't have time he says to tell you about gideon and Barak and samson and jephthah about david and samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised. This is good, right? Who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. This is victory. What they wanted, by the way, was temporal, in the sense that it was physical and personal. They wanted to conquer kingdoms, administer justice. They wanted their lives, shut the mouth of lions. In the case of Abraham, he wanted the child. Israel wanted the land. They wanted the safety. They wanted victory. And here in these verses, 32 to 35, God gave it to them. But they didn't trust God. Here's the key. They didn't trust God with the caveat that the temporal agenda had to be followed by God. It had to be theirs now. They didn't say, I'll trust God if he gives me what i really want now you hear people say this all the time i prayed about something for two years and nothing happened okay you're not trusting god you're trusting in your agenda towards god but notice in verses 32 to 39 there are two groups here but they share one thing in common one group experienced victory in verses 32 to 35 i just read that even though they came from the edges of society whose weakness was turned to strength but he says ominously in verse 26 there were others there were others who didn't experience victory they were weak and they remained weak i mean they had a strength about them for sure but they died this is important victory or not all of these characters trusted god for something bigger the first group in verse 33, there's King David, verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. In verse 33, I think he's talking about Daniel, who's weak, but remained praying and against the despot's order. He shut the mouths of lions. Verse 34 is probably about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter three. They're weak, but they quenched the fury of the flames or Gideon, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies, despite being a scaredy cat. Or in verse 35, women received back their dead, raised to life again, is referred to in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings chapter four, if you wanna look at it later. But here's the key to these people. They all had a temporal victory, one in the here and now, but not a temporal agenda. There's a difference. Temporal victory, not a temporal agenda. That is, if they didn't get these things, they still would have trusted God. In fact, you know that from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They expressly say to the despot, King Nebuchadnezzar, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, just for not bowing down to your statue, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. But even if he does not, even if not, even if we burn to a crisp, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That's so important even if he does not so he, they don't have victory in this life as an agenda others God did not rescue we know that from the characters in the second half of our list from verse 35 others in our translations it says uh, verse 35 there were others but in the original Hebrew it just says others were tortured. The others in verse 35 probably refers to women, because look at verse 35: women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others, other women, were tortured, and most likely the writer had in mind an intertestamental scripture from 2 Maccabees, chapter 7. You can look this up; it's in BibleGateway.com. It's not in our regular Bibles, but it's a, a, a sort of secondary part of the canon. But the writer of Hebrews. Uh, draws from that story. And if you look at 2 Maccabees 7, I read it this week for the first time in my life. It's a harrowing story of a woman with seven sons, seven adult sons. And all seven adult sons die for their faith and in front of her at the hands of a despot called Antiochus. They won't give in. The woman watches in the story each son die, encouraging them to do so rather than give up their faith. It's profound to read and hard to read. One son says, 2 Maccabees 7, verse 36, My brothers suffered briefly because of our faithfulness to God's covenant, but now they have entered eternal life. Why? They didn't have a temporal agenda. Hebrews 11, verse 35, they refused to be released. They might gain an even better resurrection. They didn't want to keep the stuff of life. They weren't enamored to it so much that they couldn't let it go. They didn't want the stuff here and now. If they did want the stuff here and now, that would have been treating the stuff as a god, as king. And if they did treat the stuff as important, they would have yielded in a moment, like the rich young ruler in the story in Mark 10 with Jesus they wanted eternal life they wanted what the writer calls a better resurrection something better than a rising in this life verse 36 some faced jeers and flogging this passage was very important for me at university not that I was facing jeers or flogging but I just come to know the grace of God having believed in a God who just wanted me to be moral when I was at high school I'd just come to believe in the grace of God and trust Jesus Christ. And I was asking myself the question at university when people laughed at what you believed, was it worth it? This passage, some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were killed by the sword Maccabees 7. they went about in sheepskins Ah, oh, i missed something though verse 37. see i say this because i seeing if you notice me miss something you did notice didn't you they were put to death by stoning they were sawed in two killed by the sword they went about in sheepskins and goatskins destitute persecuted mistreated the world was not worthy of them there it is The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. The writer of Hebrews draws on these people to say they believed it's worth it, this great cloud of witnesses with an ice pack ahead of you, ice pick ahead of you. They had faith beyond a temporal agenda. They wanted a better resurrection, something beyond this life but about this life. They were leaning forward to a better resurrection. We say it in the creed, the ancient creed, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. You see, none of them, I think not even those who were temporarily victorious, none of them got what they were actually in their deepest hearts looking for. Look at verse 39. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something even better, even better than the victories some god had planned something better for us so that only together with us even here in this room tonight would they be made perfect the writer is talking about what jesus calls the renewal of all things but god was in these stories all these victories even the deaths he was there when they were sworn in two, and he had a plan which is something better for us so that only together with us The idea here is that there's a future moment where they, the cloud of witnesses, and us experience the same thing. The writer is outlining what the ancients were secretly hoping for, even without understanding it. Maybe that's you tonight. Now, this is important since many people think that faith is believing and receiving now. And when God doesn't give what I really want or what I desire, they wobble. They say, is he really there? So they give up. But by doing so they show something of their heart. They didn't trust God, they trusted in their agenda to God, and they wanted God to conform. And then we find out in the conclusion that there's, with a therefore, there's one person who's ultimately commended, and that is Jesus Christ himself. So fourthly, a common thing is faith. It's focused on one, so there are three things that you need to do if you want to finish the race. Number one, unencumber yourself of all the stuff. I mean, you can have the stuff, just don't hold onto it lightly. Travel light in life. Strip off that which will stop you in your tracks, like quarry. Prioritise then the race, even at the cost, if required, if required of the things you love. And you do it by drinking in the stories of old chapter 12 verse 1 therefore since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses since they've gone before us let us throw off everything that hinders anything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles you in the race and I believe that sin sin here is not just doing wrong things in Hebrews it's most likely something like hardness cynicism self-protection causing you to stop trusting or unbelief so firstly unencumber yourself secondly fix your eyes on Jesus just like what Jesus said in that gospel reading let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus verse 2 the pioneer and perfecter of our faith this is about intentional living You see, you could fix your eyes on your personal hopes and desires. You could even spiritualize it and say, I fix my eyes on my hopes and prayers. You could fix your eyes on other people, perhaps being jealous of them. You could fix your eyes on the crazy world around you. And it's a bit crazy, but we're told here, fix your eyes on Jesus. Find the author, the one who began it, the pioneer, And the finisher, the one who finished your race, he goes before you, and behind you, and ahead of you. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. I'm reminded of the 18th century hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. When I fix my eyes on Jesus and the cross, He writes, my richest gain, my richest gain, I count but loss, and pour contempt on all my pride. And lastly, why would you do this? And the answer is, for the sake of your journey. Consider Christ, the one who, for the joy set before him, right, it's not masochism. He doesn't have a death wish. This is not to suck it up. This is not stoicism. It's because something is ahead of you that's beautiful and breathtaking. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, his king. So verse three, consider him who endured such opposition from people who are hard of heart, who are the religious leaders of Jesus' day, who engineered his death. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, so that when you get bumped and the wobblies come, and they'll come, even then you'll finish the race, says Isaac Watts, were the whole realm of nature mine, where I had it all. All of that will be an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all.